We're glad that you're here. It's uh, becoming normal in our world to have craziness going on, isn't it? And uh, it's a sad state of affairs, but yet we are here as the Church of Christ. We are here as God's people. And sometimes, not sometimes, often, many times, we need to be reminded that God is still in charge and on the throne. And that's what I want to do today. Uh, Last week we looked at Revelation chapter 5 that talked about the coronation of Jesus. I just want to pick up on that theme again. We're going to continue into the fact that Jesus is still King of kings and Lord of lords. And a mistake that we can make sometimes when we make history about other things than him. What do I mean by that? Well, we are living in years or dates that are titled A.D. Isn't that true? A.D. Now, what does A.D. stand for? Anno Domini. That's what it literally, those two letters literally mean. Now, some people think that means after death. Some people, actually literally translated, it means year of our Lord. Year of our Lord. Now, it's interesting, and I found it interesting anyway. The reason that we date it this way is that back in the, the second or third century, they were trying to find the exact date of Jesus' crucifixion so that they could celebrate Easter Sunday on exactly the appropriate date. That's what they were looking for. And uh, they traced history. They they did the best they could. The writings of historians, they used the Bible. And they basically came back to the best date that they could come up with for the death of Jesus. And so they could celebrate the resurrection. And then what they did was they looked at the Bible and they counted back the years of Jesus and they found what they thought to be year zero. You know there's a year zero in counting by A.D., sort of. (laughs) It really starts with year one, but the math works out. You have to figure in a year zero when you're looking at the prophecies of Daniel. Now, interestingly enough, it's uh, the death and resurrection of Jesus that led us to the birth of Jesus that allowed us to call it the year of our Lord. But we often don't think of it that way. If I asked you what the, last, what the title or the names of the last two or three years has been, we would say the, year of, the years of COVID. And what was the year before the year of? And the year before that, the year of? Very seldom, even though we say we are in 2022 AD, very seldom would we say 2022, the year of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But that's the way the Bible speaks. It calls history the possession of Jesus. You believe that? It's hard to believe, isn't it? You know, we're trained in our sinful world to make things that happen to us and happen, to around, happen around us the title of history. The year of COVID. The year of this tragedy. We even do it as Adventists when we look at prophecy. We think 
that it's certain events that take place in world history that moves Bible prophecy. If you believe that way, you're believing in Bible prophecy the wrong way. As you read the book of Revelation, no earthly events show that anyone here on earth has any earthly authority. No event on earth has any authority. Only Jesus Christ has authority over heaven and earth. Jesus alone moves history. No virus, no tyrant, no king, no emperor, no president, no invader will ever have their name on the history books of heaven. They do not move history. Only Jesus does. We need to be reminded of this. Only Jesus has control. We say it's the year of the election. Nope, it's the year of our Lord. It's the year of this event or that event or that tragedy or that issue. It's the year of our Lord. As Seventh-day Adventists, there's, I have a concern because we have a tendency, have had a tendency over the years to want to fill in the gaps of Bible prophecy. We want to make certain things that happen in our world a definition or a defining moment. Friends, if you read Matthew chapter 24, there are no many, there are no defining moments. There's only generalities. There'll be wars, there'll be rumors of wars, there'll be diseases, there'll be issues, there'll be false preachers. But what does we as Adventists do? We try to find the minutiae. We make it about the mandates. We make it about this and make it about that. Only Jesus moves history. Only Jesus moves history. When we try to fill in the gaps of things that are not clearly stated in Scripture because we think we're looking for the way marks, who's to say that we actually find them? You know how dangerous that is. Believing something is a waymark that is not clearly defined in Bible prophecy is dangerous because we're stating something the Bible doesn't. And you can give me all the clues and evidence you want. The problem is, if I can't clearly read it from the pages of Scripture, you are saying something that is outside of the scope of what Jesus told us. And yet we make health decisions and life decisions thinking that it's fulfilling this prophecy or fulfilling that prophecy. Here's the bottom line, friends. Jesus speaks in largely in generalities in Bible prophecy because Bible prophecy isn't about the bad stuff that happens. The bad stuff happens and it's supposed to point us to the one who's in charge of history and has our life in his hands. There are only a few, a very few, specific events that take place in the last days that God specifically names. But as Seventh-day Adventists, sometimes we want to make big events out of things that are not clearly delineated in the Bible. It's dangerous. So... We don't have time to go through all the pages and the prophecies of the book of Revelation. But what I want us to do is be reminded today who's in charge of history. Who is on the throne? COVID is not on the throne. Vaccine mandates are not on the throne. 
World leaders and presidents and elections and invaders are not on the throne. Do you believe that today? Our faith is not dictated and led by the events of world leaders and diseases and issues. Our faith is led by the King of kings and Lord of lords. And I want us to be reminded of that today. So let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Revelation. We're just going to give a bird's eye view. What we're going to do today is if you've never encountered the book of Revelation or if someone who had never read the Bible just looked at the surface application of the book of Revelation, what would they glean from it? What would they see in it? Well, the first thing that we need to recognize is that the book of Revelation, number one, here's a pet peeve of mine. Are you ready for a pet peeve? Don't call it revelations. It's not a plural. Revelations. It's not revelations. It's revelation. It's the revealing. It's singular. The revealing of Jesus Christ. It's the what? The revealing of Jesus Christ. That's literally what the book is titled. Now some say, have in their Bibles, the revelation of St. John, but we're not revealing John here. We're not disclosing John to the world. We're disclosing Jesus Christ. And in fact, if you read the first verse, it gives us the title. The revelation of Jesus Christ, the revealing or the understanding or the explaining or the, the, the crowning of Jesus Christ. That's what this book is all about. Many times, sadly, though, we don't read it as the revealing of Jesus Christ. We read it as the revealing of antichrists and marks of the beast and the revealing of tyrants and conspiracies and the Illuminati. If it's preached that way, it's not preached correctly. Everything should lead us back to Jesus because the book reveals Jesus. Now, there's some other details, but not many other than Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. Who is Jesus Christ? You know, uh, it's, it's such a tender thing to actually understand what is happening here. This is the Apostle John. John is now an old man. He was part of that first group of the disciples, or the, he was part of the disciples, and then that first group of the apostles. And John is probably now the oldest living, or maybe the last living apostle from the originals. He's the OG, he's what's left. He's an old man, he's on a prisoner island in a cave. And what's taking place now is as we're transitioning from the very first Christians in their home churches to the Christians becoming a little bit more established, slightly more established, and the government is responding with death and persecution. So John is hearing about Christians being dragged out of their homes, dragged out of their churches, killed, murdered, persecuted, imprisoned. That's what John is hearing about. Just to give you a little bit of a, a perspective, the Apostle John would have been discouraged by the soon-to-be Apostle Paul's persecution on the church. Isn't that interesting how these Bible characters relate to each other? John probably was 
about to be or is already imprisoned on Patmos while he's hearing of this Pharisee, Paul. And then he hears of this Pharisee, Paul, being converted into a Christian. It's just, it's just a powerful and amazing story when you start to think about it historically. So in Revelation chapter 1, it's truly incredible. This old apostle who hasn't seen Jesus in decades all of a sudden goes into vision. And there he sees Jesus. And Jesus knows that John has been through so much. He's heard of so much persecution. He's heard of so many problems in the church. And he thinks God has not acted on his behalf. He's a prisoner in a cave. Can you imagine that? Dedicating your entire life to faithfulness to Jesus. And now Jesus has left you to die in a cave on a prisoner island? Must have felt abandoned. And so you know the first thing that Jesus does for John? Verse 8 of Revelation chapter 1. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. What's about to happen is that Jesus is about to remind John of who he really is. You ever need that reminder? You ever feel like you're a prisoner in a cave with no hope and left there to die like God has abandoned you? We need to be reminded of who Jesus really is. And that he never leaves us nor forsakes us no matter how dire our circumstances may seem. That he hears a voice and that voice is a familiar one. He says, write what you see in the book and send it to the seven churches, John. To Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira. These were literal churches in the day where John had ministered to and maybe helped to raise up. And his concern was for them. And, and actually, these churches also represent different phases of Earth's history from here on out. So this message of the book of Revelation is to specifically seven literal churches who are experiencing persecution and sin and, and people being led astray. And it's to you and me. But the message is the same, and I want you to see what this message is. If you turn over to uh, verse 17, look what his message to John is. John must have been fearful for his own life and fearful for the churches who are experiencing persecution and death. Fear not! I am the first and the last. Fear not! I am the first and the last. I am and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and of Hades. Write the things that you have seen, those that, are, those that have taken place now and after this. And as for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches themselves. You see, the, the vision began with Jesus strolling between seven lampstands. And in his hand, he has seven stars. And John must have been thinking, well, what do those represent? Maybe he knew because he heard the angel say to him, write this stuff to these seven churches. So when he saw those seven golden lampstands, he must have thought, well, this is them. He may have. But here we get the definitive answer. The seven lampstands represent the seven persecuted churches. 
the seven struggling churches, the seven churches that are wondering, has God left them? And what is the message of Jesus to these seven churches? I'm walking in your midst. I'm right here and I haven't left. But we go through that in our human experience, don't we? We think the presence of God means that we will always be delivered. But I want to remind you of someone today. What about the thief on the cross? Now, the thief on the cross accepted Jesus as the Savior, and you would think, and this is the way we think as Christians many times, we think that as soon as Christ comes into our lives, we come down off from our cross, don't we? But if you're experiencing heartache and fear today, I want you to be reminded of this. Sometimes Jesus doesn't take us off our cross. He hangs there right beside us. And he struggles to breathe along with us. And he looks us in the eye and he says, I will never leave you. And you will be with me in paradise. What the Bible tells us is that confusing and strange things will happen to us in this world. We will have trouble. But Jesus says, I have overcome the world. He is the one that holds history. Sometimes it means he will take us off from our cross. And sometimes this world will keep us there. But when the world keeps us hanging on the cross, struggling for every breath, beaten and bloodied, embarrassed and scarred, Jesus will hang right next to us and struggle to breathe with us and keep eye contact with us until we breathe our last and give us assurance that he has overcome death and so will we. Because he's the Alpha and the Omega, he's the beginning and the end, he's the one who died and who is alive forevermore. Death may take us in this world, but death will never own us. Heartache may affect us in this world, but heartache can never own us. Fear may challenge us in this world, but fear is not our master. Only Jesus moves history. Write these things down and give them to the churches. And oh, I, I love what he has to say also. He says, there's seven stars in my hand. Those stars represent the pastors of these churches too. They need me too. And I'm with them. The Lord is with his people. He's with his leaders as time goes on. I'm a, I, was a, I was dead and now I'm alive, Jesus says. I have the, the keys of death and Hades. He who, he who has an ear, let him hear. If we go back to chapter 1 and verse 7, it, this is a reminder. Verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, the, who is he? Who is Jesus Christ? He's the faithful witness of who God really is. The firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings on earth. To him who, rule, who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom of priests to his God. 
And Father, to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. Even so, Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord. He who is and who was and who is to come. John is being reminded of who Jesus is in his hour of trial and discouragement. Several times over this chapter, he's reminded. I think today more than ever before, it's, it's important to remember when Jesus was going back to heaven in his last address to his disciples, you remember what he said, the first words that he said as he was ascending up to heaven? The first two words? All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. All authority on heaven and earth. Let me ask you a question. If all authority is given to Jesus, how much do earthly kings have? They don't have any. How much authority do earthly viruses have? They don't have any. They don't own us. They are not our king. They are not our leader. They don't have final say over what happens to us. Only Jesus does. All authority has been given unto Him. He is the first and the last, and He's walking amongst the churches. He's walking amongst the final days of earth's history. He's with us, and He will never leave us or forsake us. Do you believe that today? And if this wasn't enough of a reminder, the very next thing John sees after he hears these messages of encouragement and hope for the churches then he, he hears that, that, that invitation that we talked about last week. Hey, John, come up here for a minute. Let me show you something. And he's invited into heaven's throne room, and, and he sees the pomp and circumstance all set for the celebration. It's the coronation of Jesus. So if it wasn't enough for Jesus himself to tell John and remind John, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the beginning and the end. No one has, has say over what happens to you in your life. Now John is seeing the celebration where heaven ratifies the authority of Jesus. The Father in heaven now states, as it says in Philippians, that the Father has given Jesus a name that is above every other name. God has a name, doesn't he? But listen to this. The Father put the name of Jesus above his own because of what he did for us. The highest name in heaven and earth is Jesus Christ. The one who was dead and is now alive. The one who has the keys over death and hell. Why? Because he was the lamb. And then... Something interesting happens. The sign that Jesus is worthy, the sign that heaven recognizes that Jesus is worthy and that his name goes at the top of the list is this scroll. This scroll. And this scroll, John recognizes, is earth's history, heaven and earth's history from that point forward. And the one who takes the scroll has authority over history, is in charge of history from that point forward. And the scroll is handed to Jesus. 
Let me ask you this question. Who opens the scrolls? Jesus opens the scrolls. No war on earth cracks open a seal. No earthly king, no earthly leader. As you read through the book of Revelation, Jesus opens the seals one by one. It's him. No one on earth moves history. No action by an earthly king or president moves history along. It's Jesus. He has ultimate authority. Only he is worthy to open the seals. Revelation chapter 7. Something powerful happens. Revelation chapter 7. There's a great multitude of people that are saved, but I want you to see something, and I think this is significant to hear today. The Bible speaks of four angels that scholars over the years have believed hold back the four winds, north, south, east, and west, on the compass. And these winds are representative of destruction and war and problems on the earth. Sometimes they're referred to as the angels of mercy, holding back destruction. Now I want you to hear this. Jesus is in charge of history, amen? But sometimes worldly leaders push against the angels of mercy. Hear me now. Sometimes earthly kings push against the angels of mercy. And once in a while, they're permitted to squeak past those angels of protection and mercy. But let me tell you something. If they squeak past those angels against the will of God, they had better be ready to accept full responsibility for what they are leading the world into. If they push past the will of God, they will stand for that in the judgment. Because only Jesus holds back history. And by the way, many of the last day events are taking place because those world leaders are pushing past the angels of mercy. Taking things into their own hands, overstepping with authority, overstepping with power and war and death. They're overstepping the place that God has put them in. And they had better be ready to stand in the judgment and face their decisions. The angels hold back the wings, the winds, and it is no earthly king or conspirator. There's a whole group of people that think that there's this dark forces behind the scenes and they're constantly looking for the Illuminati or the Jesuits or these dark forces. Friends, the Bible doesn't mention them. It mentions Jesus cracking open the seals of history. We can get so caught up in what we think might be happening behind the scenes that we miss the fact that over and over and over, through the first ten chapters of the book of Revelation, it's constantly telling us Jesus opens the scrolls. The angels hold back the winds of destruction. The angels pour out the censers and sound the trumpets. It's heavenly agencies that matter at the end of time. It's not earthly powers like the Illuminati. Stop thinking about conspiracies and dark forces and start looking at the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. 
If you are looking for evil in this world, that's what you will become. It's affirmed by the spirit of prophecy. Adventists over the years have constantly been looking at the evil and dark forces who they think are moving history. When the book of Revelation says only heaven moves history. Through ten chapters. After those ten chapters, what's interesting is that, yeah, it begins to talk about some of these earthly agencies. But they're the minority in the book of Revelation. And what they're there to show us is how this world is dying. And what we're supposed to see, like, for example, the last plagues on the earth, you know what the whole purpose of those are? The whole purpose of the last plagues are to show how earth is dying, but the kingdom of God never will. That's what they're all about. They reveal the things that are eternal when they, they see the things that are finite, dying off when we see them. Seven and eight are about the censers and, and, the, and the trumpets. An angel comes down and he brings our attention to a little book that's so important. Two witnesses representing a book that's vital and central called the Old Testament and the New Testament. It has two parts. The first ten chapters, eleven chapters of the book of Revelation set the context for the rest of it. The rest of the book of Revelation does a lot of rewinding and filling in some of the signs on earth, just like Matthew 24 did. Remember, friends, there's not a lot of detail, specific detail in Revelation. And that's the way God intended it. So we have to be really careful when we convince ourselves something is a sign of the end. When the Bible doesn't specifically say that it's a sign of the end. Could it be? Maybe. Is it? Maybe not. But being so convinced that it is can lead us off track. Jesus and only Jesus is in charge of history. Jesus said in this world you will have trouble. But take heart because I've overcome the world. The rest of the book of Revelation does talk some about the schemes of men and how they will cause death and destruction and decay and lead God's people sometimes to places where they feel like John in the cave, like God has left them alone to die and he doesn't care. But it's in those times we need to be reminded that Jesus says you won't always be taken out of the trouble, but while you're in it, I will never for a second leave you nor forsake you. Here's an important lesson I've had to learn recently in my life. Difficulties will always be there. And sometimes we think that God doesn't care because he doesn't remove the difficulties. Have you ever had the experience where you know Jesus is, is, is right there with you? but he seems unmoved by your circumstances. Have you ever had that experience in your life? You know that he's right there. You can 
almost physically feel his presence right there in the room with you. But he doesn't seem to do anything. And this is one of the hardest times for Christians. Because how can a God who has all authority over heaven and earth be in the room with me and not take me out of my hardship? Doesn't he care? It's in those moments in this lesson that we learn over a lifetime. Friends, Jesus' presence is enough. We have to learn that in our lives. Jesus' presence alone is enough. Because no matter what happens to us in our time of difficulty or in our problems, His presence, He's the Alpha and the Omega. Death may take us, but death doesn't own us. Hardship may discourage us, but hardship is not our identity. The King of kings and Lord of lords is with us in our hardship, and He will never leave. He will always be there. And He's overcome death, and He's overcome hardship. And we may have trouble for a little while. It may even claim our lives. But it does, that is not the end of the story. Because the book of Revelation goes on to talk about the return of Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords. If the King of kings and Lord of lords can be with me in my hour of trial and difficulty, it doesn't matter what happens to me. I don't have to fear conspiracies. I don't have to fear darkness. I just have to know the one who died to save me. And if he takes me off my cross, hallelujah. But if he leaves me there, he'll hang there dying right next to me. And he'll never leave me there alone. 2 Corinthians 4.8 says, We are pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. We are struck down, but not destroyed. God will hold us in his righteous right hand. Isaiah 41.10 says, Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with the right hand of my righteousness. Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the first and the last. I am the one who overcame death. Deuteronomy 3.22 says, Fear not them, for the Lord your God is fighting for you. The world will go crazy. Leaders will try to hold it together and exert their power, but Christ will hold us fast. He will never leave us nor forsake us. In the end, at the very end, it'll all be okay. Because he is enough. And he defines history. I recognize that in the times that we're living, they're very difficult. Some of you have experienced heartache over the last two years. Some of you are experiencing it now, our brothers and sisters from the Ukraine, I can't imagine being so far away. 
I'm sorry. But I know who holds tomorrow. We cry with you. Our hearts are broken with you. There are people even in Russia who are protesting what Putin is doing. So the kingdom of God is alive. In this time, we need to recognize that even if we're in our hour of trial, he will hold us and never let us go. And his presence is enough. Even if we breathe our last breath in his presence, death will not be the end of our story.